Amen. Well, welcome in. Welcome to North. Um, and we are glad uh, to have you joining us uh, today. Uh, I'm Alan. I'm the pastor here at North, and we just appreciate uh, you joining us. Uh, whether you're here in person or online, we know there's still some sickness and stuff going around. So we appreciate you joining us any way uh, that you possibly can. Man, we are uh, blessed. I love this season. I love the season of life that, uh, that, that we are in right now. I love the season of life that our church is in. I was telling our staff, we had our staff Christmas uh, party uh, last Thursday, or this, this uh, Friday, past Friday, and I was telling them about all the transition that's going to be coming up with the new building. Obviously, y'all know when you pull on campus, you can see all the transition. We appreciate y'all hanging with us uh, on that. And I was telling them all the transition, all the stuff, and then I started thinking, and I was like, so basically, the same transition we've been in since we've started, right? Like, so more, it's much more of the same, right? Uh, and so, but God is doing some really cool things. We are excited. We hope you are as well. I would tell you, we've got some really tangible ways for you to get involved. Uh, last I checked, there is one more family. So we had 37. To give for reference, I think we had 22 or 23 families last year for Christmas House. We had 37 families sign up to be a part of it this year. And last I checked, we have one more uh, family left. So if you have not done that and you have not sponsored a family, we're asking you to bring those supplies and stuff in Saturday. Saturday is our Christmas house, so you got a full week to do the shopping for that family. We're providing a Christmas meal, but while they're here, they're going to get pictures with Santa. They're going to be able to decorate cookies. It's going to be a whole experience. Like we're singing Christmas carols, coming in here and having a good time, having a little Christmas concert. Um, but I'm also getting the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Right, so not just meet the need of a physical meal and fun for the family, but to share the true meaning of Christmas. And so I'm excited about that. Uh, I hope that you guys are as well. Uh, there's only one family left, but if you would still, if you would like to be a part of it, it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be Saturday from 6 to 7.30, uh, and we may not even go that long, but 6 to 7.30 is what we've got, uh, and we would love your help. Uh, more than just Santa, there's going to be some other casting characters of Christmas that are going to be there, and we could use your help. So uh, be sure to see the Next Steps table to sign up for that. As well as we got North 101 immediately after this service, we've got pizza will be arriving. Uh, and if you want to stick around and find out more about who we are as a church, if you have already come up and, and started the membership process, this is part of the process to join our church, but it is in no way, shape, form, you're not locked into any agreement in being a part of it. But we would love you to be here. We've got childcare. All of those things are handled, and we want you to be there. Also, we are rolling on with our Experiencing God. Those of you that know, in August or September, uh, I shared with you the vision of discipleship that I want to see our men's and women's groups uh, pursue. And so we are meeting at Conrad's house this uh, evening at 6 o'clock. Uh, he is on the Elkmont side of Ardmore, we'll call it, right off of Mooresville Road. Uh, see us afterwards if you want uh, directions to how to get there. Uh, we would love for you to participate in that. It is a great time, and we have some really cool conversation. Uh, it's a study that I lead, and my wife leads the women on. She'll be leading next Sunday. Are you all doing me next Sunday? There you go. So uh, I, I probably should ask these questions before I just get up here all half-cocked and, you know, 
free wielding, but that's who I am. All right, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. In the middle of our Advent series, we are on day four, week two, hopefully, of our devotions. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Like, I don't know if you had a romanticized view of how the family devotions would go, and I don't know if they've met all of your expectations or if they have not. I'll just be honest with you. There are times that I have some really sweet moments with our child. Just the way my daughter answers Jesus to every question we ask is awesome, right? Because Jesus is always the answer, right? And so most of the time, if she gets the right answer, her mom has whispered it to her, but Jesus, right? And I love it. And it's adorable because she's my daughter and she does no wrong. Um, But there are other times that devotions sound more like exorcisms, right? Like, and head spinning around and it's, you know, so just know like this is, discipleship can be messy, all right? And so just know, stay with it. Uh, Man, it's a really, really cool, uh, cool study that we're in and then reinforcing it on Sunday mornings. It's just really cool. So we've talked about the hope of Christmas. Now we are in the peace of Christmas. And so our God with us series, uh, today we are talking about the peace of of God that only God can bring in our life. When we think about peace, when the world thinks about peace, they have a very twisted understanding of what peace really is. And so today I don't have a object lesson, so to speak, but I do have a story that I want to share with you. I want you to take you back to Christmas Eve 1944. Christmas Eve in the Ardennes Forest 1994. Uh, in 1994, the World War II battle. What did I say? I meant 44. Thank you. 44. World War II, all right? Like, it's like 41 to 45, all right? 44. In the middle of that, all right? Gosh, ruined it. So dumb. Um, any, gosh. Lord can use anybody, by the way, uh, even people that, you know, take you back to 1994. Um, so see, I've lost everything. 44. All right. 1944. Uh, they're in the middle of the war of world war two. Uh, the, the allied forces have pushed back, uh, Germany all the, I mean, really to the breaking point They're in France. Uh, and, and Hitler wants to come up with one final counteroffensive to try to turn the war back in their favor. And his idea is to focus all of his forces in one area that many of the Allied forces thought, was in, thought were impassable for the German forces, the Ardennes force, dense forest in the middle of winter. It's cold, it's freezing, and they decide to do it right in the middle of of winter. And so the idea is to break the the British and American lines to hopefully gain access to their storehouses and their supplies so that they can strengthen their army that was their supplies were dwindling. And so he put all of his his eggs in that one basket, pushed all his chips to the middle and what we know as the Battle of the Bulge. 
Other than Normandy, other than D-Day, right, this is probably the most famous battle of World War II. And so he pushes back the force. The reason why it's the Battle of the Bulge is the, the Allied lines actually bulge. They actually are pushed to their breaking point before men like George Patton show up and lay the smack down, right? Like, and so they're pushed to this breaking point and they don't know what, what's going to happen in this war. Well, nine days into the conflict is Christmas Eve, and there's a small home, a small cottage in the Ardennes Forest with a young boy and his mother who are preparing to eat dinner for themselves. Their father is away, and they are preparing to eat dinner. It's the home of 12-year-old Fritz Vinken, and they are preparing to eat dinner when they hear a knock at the door. The knock they hear when they answer the door is three American soldiers, one who has been shot and two that are healthy, that are trying to provide care for them, and they ask to seek shelter in their home for the night. And so she invite, allows him to come in and lays him down. They begin to try to provide some care, and he, she begins to cook dinner. Uh, and before, right before they eat, there's another knock. On the door. And so this, because these Americans had been displaced from their troop, they just figured this was more, the mother figured this, there was, there was just more American troops that had lost their way in the battle. And so she answers the door only to find a different uniform. Now this is a historical documented event uh, that, that truly happened. And there's four German soldiers. Four German soldiers that ask, hey, whatever you're cooking smells delicious, can we eat? And she says, absolutely, you can eat every last bite, but I've got to inform you of something. You're going to come in here and you're going to find that there are some house guests that we have that you don't typically get along with. I mean, in this day, these are the two world powers. Russia's there, they're on another front. So on this western front, it is America and it is... Germany, and there are two bitter rivals in a place of complete and utter conflict. I mean, the, the whole force was laid waste. It was a terrible, horrible conditions, awful war, conflict everywhere. But here in this cabin, right, there are these two forces. She said, all right, my only rule is leave the guns outside. So they agree, they come in, and they sit down to a meal of rooster and potatoes and bread. I said it started out awkward and they ate and then the mother grabs their Bible and opens it to Luke chapter 2, reads the birth narrative of Jesus, closes the Bible and simply says, Come, King Jesus, we invite you here. Fritz telling the story says he looks at men that have everything, everything against one another and sees tears streaming down both of their eyes as God does a miraculous work of peace in a land of complete conflict. Peace in the middle of storm. So as the story goes, they, they continue to spend the... They spend the night there, they seek the, the shelter, and in the morning they shake hands and they go finding, looking for their, their troops, their battalions. 
But when we talk about peace, peace in God's eyes is not the absence of conflict. That's what we tend to, to want, right? And truthfully, I want it too. I want the absence of conflict in my life. That doesn't always happen. And listen, I know, like I said before, I know that y'all think you have this idealized view of a pastor's home. Uh, unless you're my neighbors, which I was informed by one of my neighbors uh, in first service. No, 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 we know. Uh, so so they, they live like three houses down. And I like, know we, 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 we get it because we hear you. I'm loud, okay? It pays my bills. I don't know many soft-spoken pastors, but uh, sometimes it can get out of hand, right? But we don't talk to each other in the King James language. Like, we don't, uh, you know, speak to each other in verses. Like, seriously, we're real people, and there is conflict in our home a lot, right? But peace doesn't depend on our circumstances, the peace that we'll be speaking of today transcends all of that. And what we see on this Christmas Eve night is exactly what Christ offers. Not peace from conflict. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but contentment despite conflict. Contentment in recognizing a God who is in control. Emmanuel, God with us forever. If we're convinced of that, we'll have peace. And the moment we lose perspective of that is the moment we are thrown into chaos. So let's look first to the promise of peace. In the same way that hope extends throughout the entire canon of scripture, we see the same thing about peace. It begins even in Genesis chapter 3 where, where hope began last week, right? After Adam and Eve has sinned, they have eaten the fruit. Paradise was lost. Listen to what God says in verse 22. Then the Lord's God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, let us, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree in life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Now, I've made mention of this before in other series. When we talk about the fall of God, when we talk about Adam and Eve being removed from the garden, we typically refer to it simply in punitive form, in punitive terms, meaning that God was punishing man because they had sinned. So you no longer get to live in the Garden of Eden. But that is not the only reason, according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, that is not the only reason why God removes man from the Garden of Eden. What he says is in the Garden of Eden, whether these are physical literal trees or whether these are metaphors, man chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of choosing to eat of the tree that was wholeness and contentment and peace, they chose to be God. Instead of being in relationship with God, they chose to be God and call the shots for their life. And as soon as they ate from the tree, they realized that the serpent was right halfway. They knew right and wrong. They just knew they were wrong. <laughs> and now there was a gulf fixed between them and a perfect God. There was separation. It's why they hid themselves. It's why they sewed together fig leaves. They were, for the first time, man was in shame. Separated from a loving and holy God. And what he tells them is, 
I don't want man to stay this way. So instead of them eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and then trying to fix their mistake and eating of the tree of life where they will live forever in their sin, we got to get them out of here. We've got to remove them from the garden lest they eat and remain in their sin forever. We've got to not just punish them because of their actions. It's not just a consequence, but it was protection for them to separate them lest they reach their hand out and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This can't be the end of the story. So we take them out. So he drove man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Not just, not just casting them out but arming an angel, a cherubim, with a weapon of warfare, right, to keep them from ever returning. There was a gulf fixed between the presence of God and man. There was hostility. There was rebellion. God had created man, and man had rebelled against God. And this is the hostility that we see through the entire narrative of Scripture. Literally, we will read Revelation 21 that addresses what God will do in the future. But we are still dealing with this hostility. We are still dealing with this rivalry as deep, as hated as, as uh, Germany, as Nazi Germany and the uh, United States were rivals pitted against one another, right? There is even greater hostility, even greater dissonance between a holy God and an unholy man. But God promises peace. In the Abrahamic covenant, thousands of years removed from the promise, in the same way that God spoke hope to Abraham, he also spoke peace. He spoke of a reconciliation between God and man. In Genesis chapter 17, he discloses the most important part of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's not the part that we learn in Bible school. It's not that he would have more descendants than he could count like the stars in the heavens, than the sand on the seashore. It's not that he would inherit the land of Canaan, that that would be the promised land, that though he is a stranger there, one day his people will inherit it and they will live there, right? It is not a piece of property. Genesis chapter 17 tells us that God makes a promise to Abraham that he, they, that the people of Israel, his family, his descendants would be my people. He gives Israel access to himself. There's a reconciliation that would happen. This is reinforced in the Mosaic Covenant when God makes a covenant with Moses in Exodus chapter 19, and you can turn there and we'll read and see the parameters of this agreement, right? He's, he makes a covenant with Moses. He says, listen, if you want to experience the blessings of this covenant, if you want to experience life connected with me, it's got to be on my terms because I'm a holy God. And listen to what he says in verse 5. Now, therefore, if, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. He is reinforcing what he said to Abraham, but there is a very important word there. Now, the word sometimes in Greek and Hebrew, the word that we translate if could, is, is actually a statement of fact and could better be translated since. Since you will indeed obey my voice. That is not the word that we see here. If means here a, a statement of condition. Here are the conditions to being my chosen people, my treasured possession, and this kingdom of priests and a holy nation that he speaks of. If you will obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant, then you will be my special people. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God reinforcing his covenant but with the understanding that you must obey in order to receive the blessing of that covenant. But we know how that story ends, don't we? We know where the Old Testament leaves us with a people who have not obeyed God's voice, who have not listened to his commandments and have been led into exile. They've been taken away because they would not, they could not help themselves. They began to follow other gods. It's why God would tell a man named Hosea to take a wife who was a harlot, right? That literally his marriage to her would be a picture of a marriage to Israel that though he loved his wife, loved Gomer, and though he loved her and pursued her with redeeming love, she continued to go after other lovers. And in the same way, Israel continued to leave God, to forget God time and time and time again. Do you remember what she, they had to name their children, right? Depressing names, their third child. Proof that Hosea was quite certain that that child was not his, the name that God told him to name the child was Lo Ami, literally translated, not mine. Can you imagine that name? Can you imagine the complex that you would have as a child? Literally, your name is illegitimate, not mine. That's Hosea chapter 1. And then one verse later, Hosea 2 verse 1. Say to your sons and daughters, you are my people. Call low on me by a new name. Call them a me, which means mine. Once they were not a people, but there will come a day where they will be mine. This is the promise of of God, right? Lived out in Hosea's life, a contemporary of Hosea, Isaiah, who's writing in a time when Israel, when, when uh, uh, the fall of the northern kingdom was imminent, if not happening at that moment, right? But the, north, the southern kingdom thought they were okay, but he was pronouncing judgment on them. But listen what he says. We find this all the time read in, uh, in Christmas, in the context of Christmas, right? Isaiah 9, chapter... Uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. 
right? Man couldn't reconcile this conflict. There was a gulf fixed. We could not get to God. All the way back from Genesis 3, right? 4,000 years before Genesis 3 happens and Jesus arrives on the scene, man couldn't do it. Definitive proof. We needed someone else. And Isaiah would prophesy in the time of the divided kingdom, he would prophesy, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Literally in the middle of telling Israel, telling Judah how they will be destroyed, he details another kingdom. This kingdom will be destroyed, but here's this kingdom. Here's this child that will usher in a new kingdom. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time, this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The desire of the Lord of heaven's armies will do this. A child will be born. See, man couldn't reconcile himself, God would have to step in and provide a reconciler, provide not an idea, not a people, but a person. And so secondly, we see a person of peace. This, there would be an eternal kingdom established from the line of David who would rule in perfection forever, an eternal, peaceful kingdom. And what kingdom has ever existed that did not have peace, that, that, that had peace, right? There's always been war and conflict in every kingdom, but not just that it's eternal, but it is an eternal peaceful community. It is a community that is identified by the peace that they have, but it comes through a person. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us what this person will be like. Again, Isaiah, who is definitely prophesying after the fall of the northern kingdom at this time, but now the imminent fall of the southern kingdom is happening. He prophesies again about one who would come and who would bear the weight. The people are experiencing the consequence of all their sin. They're experiencing what it's like to have to be separated from God. Yes, God was with them for a time, but because of their sin, they did not obey. Stipulations passed down from Moses on Sinai, right? They were separated from God and they were feeling the consequence of that sin. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, 
we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all has been laid on us. In dealing with the future hope of Israel, Isaiah details a suffering servant that would bear the weight of men's, man's sin and consequences for their sin. The term chastisement that brought us peace, the term chastisement is the word for discipline or punishment. The punishment for our iniquity, for our transgressions, was upon him. Alan, what does that mean? When I talk with people that are making decisions for Christ, I share it to them this way. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. It's like this. Uh, many of us, if we don't have a sibling, at least have friends that have siblings. We know how siblings tend to interact. Again, in my super harmonious home where everyone gets along and we float around on clouds, sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes my boys have conflict together. My kids do things they're not supposed to. I know that's shocking to all of you. But sometimes my kids misbehave. And in those moments of conflict, there's usually rules that are broken. Right? My two boys will get to fighting, which is against the rules. They'll break something or throw hands or whatever's going on. And eventually it's time for daddy to put his foot down. Right? I step in as the disciplinarian belt in tow or wooden spoon or whatever, and I'm about to hand out a, a, a whooping. And I think of it like this. What would happen if my perfect angelic daughter, right at the moment, because she does no wrong, right? She's fight me, okay? Does no wrong. My son's in the middle of all of their conflict about to have the, the book laid out for him, right? About to be punished, about to receive judgment. And my daughter floats down and says, y'all know, y'all get it, okay? All right, she's really cute though. Gosh, she's cute. And she says, Daddy, I know my brothers are messed up. I know they've broken the rules and I know they've sinned. She's getting real articulate these days apparently. But instead of punishing them, I want you to punish me instead. That's which I say no, because I you're really adorable, and actually they they had this coming, you know. No, but but that's exactly what Jesus did for us. If there's anybody that's ever existed that doesn't deserve to feel the weight of the punishment of sin, it's one that was sinless. Stand to reason? That criteria was only met from one person who ever converted oxygen into carbon dioxide on this planet. And of all the people in the world that deserve to be punished for sin throughout time and history, that person of all people is the only one that doesn't deserve to feel any of it. 
But that's not what happened, is it? But that one who was perfect, Paul would say, he who knew no sin became sin for us. This is New Testament lens to Isaiah so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That is a scandal. The one who knew no sin became sin for me and you. Felt the full weight of not just my sin, but your sin and the sin that echoes from Genesis 3 on. And he bore it on the cross. Scripture tells us it pleased God to wound him. He became sin. He took our punishment so that by his wounds we might be healed. The punishment, the chastisement for our transgressions was upon him. He took our punishment. The one who, of all people, didn't deserve it, took it for one that totally deserved it. And this is what we see. Bore in the weight of the person. This is the Prince of Peace. When the angels announced him in Luke chapter 2, as it was read before opposing forces at a dinner table in, in 1944, and Christmas Eve night, behold, I bring you good tidings. The refrain of heaven was glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, peace, finally, finally, from Genesis 3 till now, finally there is peace. Goodwill toward men. Now God, when he looks at us, does not have to designate only wrath for us because there has been peace provided through the reconciler. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the person of peace. Ephesians 2, 12, 16 reinforces this fact. Paul, having experienced Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, says, remember that you were all at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the hope, the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers of the covenant of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. You were Gentiles. You weren't even God's chosen people, even though they blew it. You weren't even God's chosen people. You were outsiders. You were hostile, right? You were completely without hope, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace and y'all the reason why God has called his people to peace remember what we said what would be idyllic what would be uh a characteristic of those of his kingdom, they would reign not just forever, not just in eternally, but in peace. The reason why peace is of his people is there ain't nothing anybody could do to you that's any worse than what we did to Jesus. There ain't nothing. So to live in bitterness is to live without the perspective of what you've been saved from. 
To not be able to live at peace is to miss who you really were. But he who knew no sin became sin for us. But in the same way that we don't have to look at a Jesus who died to get our peace, though he has provided peace, God offers peace for us. We don't just, in the same way, hope, right? Our hope just isn't in a Messiah who has come. Our hope is in a Messiah who will come again. In the same way, our peace is not in a Messiah who bore the weight of our sin, but in a Messiah who will come back to receive us to himself. And so thirdly, we find the perfection of peace. The perfection, the completion of peace. The word peace, shalom, literally means wholeness. Completion. What does that look like? Jesus tells us in John chapter 14. He's talking to his disciples. A group of people that at this time would certainly feel tempted to not have peace. This God with skin on that had been, they'd been following for three years has just laid out to them the fact that he's leaving. He's going away, and though they've never experienced a context of ministry without Jesus beside them, Jesus is about to be out of here. And so they had reason to despair. But look at John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. You'll hear that again. You heal that again in that same, in the same chapter. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, will not I not again come to you and receive you into myself? That where you may be, where I am, there you may be also. Skip down to verse 18. He tells them, again, I will not leave you as orphans to fight for yourself. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace, I leave you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. He begins and ends. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why is there peace for us? Well, for one, because we have faith in God. If we have hope in Jesus, right? He says, believe you believe in God, believe also in me. Put your faith and hope and trust in me. We have a promise of reward. He's, he, there is a place for us, a mansion. There's many rooms, right? He's detailing these things. And he's saying, I'm preparing a place for you. And the very idea of preparing a place is that we also have peace and a hope of his return. That Jesus will come again and receive us into himself. And then he even says, but in the meantime, a helper will be provided. My abiding presence will be with you, and he will guide you, and he will teach you. God has given us as a people reason for peace. It is the characteristic of our king, 
Therefore, it is the characteristic of our kingdom. Do we live with that peace? As I said earlier, I want you to turn to Revelation 21, and I just, I just want to read this over us. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you got, what you got happening in your life. But I just want to remind you of this. I want to speak it over you because I want you need to have this perspective. If you are of this kingdom, if you are of the eternal kingdom that was started through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, if you are a part of this kingdom, you need to have this perspective. And if you don't, the chances are good you're not a part of this kingdom. We began today talking about the destruction of paradise, where man experienced the tangible presence of God unrestricted. It's at the very beginning of the book, right? Genesis 3, not much has happened. God created us and we blew it. That's the story. Until Revelation 21. So it makes sense for us to go to the back of the book to see where paradise is finally restored. This is not an if statement. This will happen. So it's fitting to end with the restoration of paradise. God could dwell with man in Eden, but he will dwell with man once again. Again, it's a relationship. God has called us into a relationship with him that transcends every part of our chaos. Revelation 21, verse 2 through 4. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, Eden is back on the table. You know what happened in Genesis 3? It's over now. Because the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will be, they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And I don't know what you're going through. But when that happens, verse 4 is true. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. When God shows up, when he dwells with man, paradise returns. For the former things have passed away. They're dead, buried, and gone. Is that the peace that you have today? Is that the peace that informs your actions? Are you allowing the chaos of your circumstance? Are you settling for, for an attempt at worldly peace? Not absence of conflict, but contentment through whatever life may bring. Do you have that found in a relationship with Jesus Christ? And so with every head bowed and eye closed, 
as I've said, the characteristic of this kingdom purchased for us by King Jesus is one at peace. If you're here in this room and you don't have that peace, may I invite you into this relationship. God doesn't offer you land, prosperity, money, any of those things. What God offers you is the same thing he offered Abraham himself. And boy, God isn't your quick fix to get you out of all the mess that you're in. So if you're coming to him for that, just know that that's, that may or may not be on the table. But what he promises is himself. You are entering into a relationship with King Jesus. And through that relationship, we have contentment and we have peace. We have hope. We have joy. We have love that transcends anything that we could ever encounter and go through. Believe in God, Jesus said. Believe also in me. Put your faith and your confidence and trust in me. Not just a Messiah who would die for you, but one that would come again to bring you perfect peace. We'll battle with our flesh until that day comes. But we battle because it's not who we are anymore. Are you a part of his kingdom? Today, I would invite you to respond to that relationship. Today, you can make the decision right now. Right now, you can make the decision in your heart to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. Not to fix all your problems, not even to make you a better person, but to make you new, to make you clean. And would you just confess your sins to him and would you ask him to take control of your life as Lord and Savior? Right now, without doing anything else, you can make that decision today. Right now in the quiet of this moment. Would you do that? God, I choose to follow you. I choose to respond to the relationship that you have offered me through Jesus. And if you're here today and you made that decision, my goodness. God has set you free. Now, now it's important incumbent on you to let somebody know about this decision that you've made. To identify yourself with like-minded people that have hope, that have peace, not based in this world, but based in a world that is to come where God dwells with man. So if you're here and you made that decision, would you let somebody know? In just a moment, I'm going to say amen and we're going to stand and sing. And if you made that decision, I'll be here at the front. I would love to talk to you. Love to talk to you about the decision that you just made to follow Jesus. we got counselors that would love to meet with you. But don't leave this place without doing business. Find one of us as, we, as you leave today. You're going to walk right past us. Grab one of us. But do business with God. Maybe you're here and maybe you know you have that relationship, but you have been saturated in an attempt to find peace as the world defines it. 
How's that going for you? Would you turn it over to God? Would you ask him to renew your perspective of how things really are? He is God with us forever. He is ruling and he is reigning and he is sovereign over your circumstances. Would you just give it over to him and allow him to carry the weight? Whatever decision needs to be made, I pray that you would respond as the Spirit leads in this moment. Father, have your will and way in our hearts and lives. Lord, we love you. We thank you for how you draw us into relationship. You are the lover of our souls. You desire us. So God, let us respond to that incredible fact. Would you offer peace? In time that may be crazy in our lives, you offer peace. Lord, I pray that we would respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand to your feet as we sing. Would you come? As the Spirit leads it on, lays it on your heart. Would you come?